0: My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal,
1: complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. Why inventive?
0: Well, she was inventive in so many ways. I mean, we would hear from her calling from the basement going, "You guess what I just found down here? As if the most fun you could possibly have would be going down into the basement and cleaning it.
1: Mama, Welcome to another week of celebrating the life of one extraordinary mother. This is Our Mothers, Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. I'm dedicating this week's podcast to every single mother who, if she were alive today, would bask in her daughter's success, whether that success consists of becoming a great journalist, as with my guest today, or maybe vice president of the United States. When it comes to celebrating Liz Mitchell, I honestly don't even know where to start. I'll just give you a few bare facts about this remarkable woman. Liz Mitchell raised her four children with wisdom and humor in the same small Connecticut town where she grew up. She met her husband in a made-for-the-movies way. She loved kids, hated arrogance, made friends with just about everyone, and she could have done anything with her life, but as she put it, she came along at the wrong time. Liz Mitchell's daughter, Biz, is a journalist whose latest book, Lincoln's Lie, a true Civil War caper through fake news, Wall Street, and the White House, was just published. Biz Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your mom.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I love to talk about her.
1: (laughs) She sounds amazing. And, you know, with every single uh, episode... Uh, I kind of scratched my head about what the theme would be. And I am thinking that maybe the theme for this one is no manual included. Yeah. And <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, very much so. The Just that she seemed to have this incredible intuitive understanding for what it took to be a mother.
0: Yes. Right? I think that's absolutely true. Yes.
1: So let's start uh, with this question that I often pose to guests, which is, if you had just one word to describe your mother, what would the word be? Inventive. <laughs> Why inventive?
0: Well, she was inventive in so many ways. I mean, first of all, uh, when we were growing up, we didn't, we weren't very well off, I would say. I mean, we were basically a version of pinching pennies in order to finance education, let's say, or with that goal in the future. Um, So she was inventive in terms of how she created an extraordinary life with not that much in terms of resources. She was inventive in as much as she was constantly providing us with things that we could use to create Amazing experiences such as, you know, going down to the newspaper office and getting rolls of newsprint so that we could do long drawings that would stretch the whole living room and into the dining room area. Um, Mm. She would create holidays for everyone that were kind of beyond belief, you know, as if we were suddenly back in some kind of eighteen hundreds English, (laughs) uh, you know, village or something like that. And she was inventive in terms of the stories she would tell and the kind of um, exploration she had of people.
1: All without a lot of material things. Yes, absolutely. You know, when we
0: would be in the house, we would hear from her calling from the basement going, you who guess what I w- just found down here, as if the most fun you could possibly have would be going down into the basement and cleaning it and discovering <laughs> little, little that's things.
1: Inventive. Yes, that's
0: inventive. And she even had a sense of humor about that, that it was, you know, it was almost spooky to have her calling to us from the
1: basement. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so let's start From the very beginning with her, where was she born? When was she born? Give us her full name, her full maiden name.
0: So her full name was Elizabeth Ann Mashinsky. She was born in Wallingford. She was born in 1935, and she came into a family that already had six children. So she was the youngest of that group. And her father was a Hungarian immigrant who had come over when he was around 19 years old uh, with the idea that he was going to be a tailor. And he went first to New York, worked there for a bit, and then he moved to, for some unknown reason, (laughs) to this town, Wallingford, Connecticut, which is sort of in the center of the state, uh, and set up shop there. At one point, he must have been a bit creative and a
1: inventive, kind of, maybe.
0: Yeah, inventive. Kind of a good businessman, but apparently, my grandfather at one point owned a a pub, an ice cream shop, uh, an opera house briefly. And so, and her, her mother was, uh, by all accounts, extremely lovely woman who was born to Czech parents.
1: So your mom, she grew up in the Depression. She was the seventh child mm-hmm. in this family. Did she go to public high school? And then where did she go to college? And what did she study?
0: So first she went to Catholic school for elementary school, and then she went locally, and then she went to the local public high school. And then she went to Pembroke, which was the female version of Brown.
1: (laughs) Oh, because Brown did not... They was all male.
0: Yes, but she, that was a fairly substantial, you know, adventure for her to go on. And what did she study? She studied English. She did a a final project that was about in poetry.
1: So then she then left college and what was her first job?
0: Her first job was to be a reporter. So she came to she came back to her, you know, hometown and she got a job at the Morning Record, which was the local paper. Uh, Wait. in that town. Yeah. The, the walling walling It was, yeah, it was based in Wallingford, um, and covered the area in general, you know, multiple towns.
1: Nice. A daily newspaper. Yes. Morning paper or an afternoon paper. Do you know?
0: Um, it, it was a morning paper. Uh, uh, uh-huh. But uh, yeah, I mean, we missed that stage, of, obviously, because she was she hadn't had, yet had kids. But she, so I didn't see her in the full-on deadline. But yes, she was she was a regular reporter there. So how did she meet your dad? He was a reporter for the rival paper.
1: Oh come on, this is like <laughs> she, uh, Rosalind Russell, <laughs> his girl Friday, right? Well,
0: I mean, they were both uh, they both had a certain. S- touch of shyness but i mean basically she kind of saw him as a gregory peck type yeah it will (laughs) and and the other thing is that the person who set them up was uh, the editor at her paper who was a kind of you know grizzled reporter avuncular type who kept sending her off on the assignments that he knew that my father would be on so that they would keep colliding come on
1: i'm serious that's (laughs) such a great story and so there, they'd be like covering some city hall meeting, and <laughs> yeah, their or eyes would meet across the room. And <laughs> apparently, that editor was putting a lot of
0: pressure. You know, why why wasn't he making the move and asking her out? And then he finally asked my mother to go skating.
1: Oh, it gets better. <laughs> skating, yeah, ice skating, yeah. Oh my gosh! So wait, I this that ed- but this editor was her editor? Yes, but but he who, knew wait, of there was my a, dad. And there was a rival small paper in the little town. It,
0: well, that one was the New Haven Register. So it was, you know, a, a, oh, the big about the twenty towns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and how old were they when they got married?
0: Well, she was twenty-four, and he was twenty-nine—an
1: older man. Yes, he had
0: served in uh, Korea, and so that had, you know, sort of slowed down his all of his other life paths
1: and then they settled down in Wallingford
0: they settled in Hamden and then they were there for several years but moved there when i was 1 years old so mm-hmm. uh so i and i was the
1: youngest of four kids right so she so when they got married they started having kids right away yes did she <laughs> did you yes. quit the job as a reporter yes Okay, so there she is. She's a woman of her generation who probably would have gone on to be executive editor of... (laughs) Yes. Right?
0: Yes. I mean, she was, as my brother said about her when we were going through her archives after her death, uh, that she was the girl who won all the prizes. You know, she was in high school... She had won everything and then she went on to college and just had an of outstanding academic career there. And so it must have been quite a challenge for her, although she loved family life, but quite a challenge to just stop all that uh, in order to raise us.
1: This brings us to this, you know, no manual included part of the, the 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 life of of Liz Mitchell who started having kids and immediately knew exactly what she was doing as a mother right
0: yes it's really uh, extraordinary i mean what we haven't mentioned yet is that her mother died when she was 8 years old so she had a she had memories of her mother certainly and you know certainly also the tr- memory of the trauma of just her mother kind of almost just vanishing. And when her mother died, she was just told your mother went to the angels. And then she had these older siblings, some of whom were, uh, you know, who were sisters and those, all of those siblings, you know, helped take on the raising of her, but it's not the same thing because it's, you know, there's, competitions. There's, you know, sibling little squabbles and all those sort of things. So uh, it's not the same. So she she grew up without that straightforward mothering and then basically invented it for us. Uh, and and so she was a very unique type of mother,
1: <laughs> I think. So not only did she instinctively know how to mother, she had absolutely no role model in doing it. And so I guess you could make the argument that she did an even better job because she had to kind of do it on the fly.
0: I think that's quite true. I mean, the other part of it is she had no negative connotations with motherhood.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And she was this brilliant person. And, you know, she did at one point say to me that she thought that it was a tough time for her to come along in as much as there was a little bit of that window of women can achieve other things. So, even though she was a minority in her, you know, to be going off to this four-year college uh, and getting a liberal arts education, she still knew that she was supposed to immediately channel into that kind of family life world. And then, you know, the 60s, late 60s and 70s come along And all of a sudden, that's a little bit looked down upon, you know, Mm -hmm. that that whole idea of devoting yourself in that particular way. And so that I think was a big challenge for a person, particularly because my father was working at Westland during the time during that period of the late 60s, early 70s. And so he she was surrounded by people who were, you know, kind of, <laughs> look down on that. Um so Wesleyan
1: think, University Yes. And-
0: there was one time I remember there being a little crack in the armor where she uh it's it was something one of my brothers sort of said when he was, you know, he's quite small, probably ten years old, eleven years old or something. And he made some kind of comment to her about perhaps she was jealous of my father that he, you know, got this new job, which she went to Yale after Westland and she just burst into tears. And it was a very awkward moment at the dinner table. But you realized all of a sudden that the fact that she had done all these things for us and was so loved in the community and accomplished all sorts of things, she still had that tiny bit of, you know, what she could have done if she had complete freedom.
1: And that's the only time you saw her kind of break down, at least in front of you, about what she could have done with her life in addition to being your mother.
0: There was only one other time, which was at the saddest time, which was after she got her cancer diagnosis. And there was one time when she, we were talking in the living room uh, and she She broke down in that way, the idea there were things she still had wanted to do. But otherwise, but see, this is I want to make sure (laughs) that the other side of her is fully represented, because if those were those two moments and then the rest of her was just this intense engagement with kids, with grandkids, with Mm. students at Choate, with um, every person who she encountered, you know, she'd ride a train from walling from new haven to new york and she'd have a new friend that she met on the train who she had the deepest conversation with oh because um, she
1: was a, just a probably a super curious person
0: absolutely she was very curious about people
1: mm-hmm. and there's
0: and and their know, stories you, absolutely yes uh- she th- she found everyone completely fascinating
1: and you mentioned Chote. what about
0: Chote school is in this town of Wallingford and we had nothing to do with it at all when we were growing up. <clears throat> but when my oldest brother was getting onto high school age, he wanted to try to get into Chote, Uh, and so they said, fine. And so he, he got in. And so then that sort of led to each of us then applying to the school. So we ended up all going there. And my mother, once I graduated, started working there first in the alumni office, sort of as uh, head of alumni relations. Um, and then she left it for a bit to go work for her foundation, New Haven, because she wanted to have sort of more impact on people who she felt really needed help. Uh, and then found that a little bit too bureaucratic to get as much done as she wanted. So she went back to Choate and was sort of conducting it she took over this very small program which was uh, getting students to give tours of the school but she turned it into this massive cult-like operation no but it was like you know whereas <laughs> usually
1: everyone wanted to give tours. yes
0: it was so i mean it's it as again a running joke with us um you know, and her that that when I went there, it was maybe four kids would give tours, and it was this minor thing you just showed up and did the tour and punched out, and instead, she had some several hundred students at any given time who were gold key students, and they would not only give the tours but they would spend hours in her office talking about everything and you know and she would she would pose deep questions about life to them and she'd have them, you know, and then be sharing, Well, oh, that person said this. Isn't that interesting? And you know, it would go around. So when she would come to New York to visit me, we would be walking down the street and we would be stopped what seemed like every block by some person coming up and saying, you know, oh, Miss Mitchell, it's so amazing oh. to see you.
1: Yeah. And And what about her involvement in the community?
0: Well, her when we were young, she would take on every once in a while a feature story to write, and one of those was about uh, this man Phil Ventry in, in the town who had the aspiration of starting a symphony orchestra. And she in got your so, little town in the little town, and so she got so interested in this that she yeah. then just you know got on the she you know, joined the board at, at that point, I think it was extremely small board and basically made it a reality. So it was, uh it was this thing that through my whole childhood was amazing.
1: How do you get an entire symphony, build a symphony in a small town? Yeah. You need an endowment. You they need-
0: didn't have much of an endowment, but, uh, if any, but what they did, they, she just Fundraised for them constantly. So so basically, uh, Phil Ventry was a, a, a teaching at Choate uh, as a music teacher. So he, you know, convinced Choate to let them use the facilities for the actual concerts. They then, you know, throughout the New Haven, you know, Cheshire uh, Middletown, you know, there's a lot of universities and things in the area. So he would get musicians, they would be paid for their rehearsal time and their Mm -hmm. performance time. Uh, they would get people to donate the sheet music and they put on multiple concerts a year. So there was, uh, you know, it was like a, it's a high end, wonderful, (laughs) they would have guest musicians. I mean, it's a very extraordinary asset and, and lovely, jewel to be given to this town and so it was just interesting to see how much she was the focus of making that happen with amazing phil Phil ventry yeah but the other thing that she did was that uh in the town there was a, a a group that was to to work with um you know the hispanic community in the town and the kids at Chote wanted to give music lessons to the kids in this organization and so she would drive any person who wanted to go give lessons on a regular basis and so I just even the other day got an email message from them saying that when the kids wanted to do a mariachi band recently, uh, the director at first said, I don't think that could happen because we just don't have the money and we don't, I don't know how to, you know, corral what we need. And then they realized, you know, that's not what Liz Mitchell (laughs) would say. Liz Mitchell would find a way to do it. Exactly. So (laughs) they're going ahead.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that's an incredible legacy. Would you say she considered that her finest achievement outside of raising her four kids?
0: Yeah, I mean, she she straight out said raising her kids was her highest achievement. Um, Because also, when I say this, it's not because I'm taking somehow taking on the, uh, you know, honor that that would bestow on me. What it is, is that she was very good at kind of giving you a narrative that she wanted to frame her life you know so <laughs> she would say you know i had an incredible life and raising kids was the highlight of my existence yeah she she definitely felt that the symphony was a huge achievement too and it, it was something that she loved too because she just loved music so much and she loved beautiful things and you know when people were their most deep dignified graceful selves and so this was a way to make sure that that was going to happen at least four times a year in her town.
1: So when you decided to become a journalist and you were here you are a young woman with a lot of the advantages that she didn't have how did she hold that and how did she support you? She
0: always was extremely enthusiastic of about whatever I was achieving, let's say, or, you know, whatever opportunities that I got to have and was definitely a supporter of my writing life and not, and this goes back to even when I was a kid, she wouldn't enjoy it in that way of, oh, Good for you, you, know, you little tyke that you have written. I <laughs> like pat you on the head. Yeah, of it of wasn't one of those things like, oh, you know, or even baby talk you about it. She would respond to the text, you know. So I was writing stories from when I was five years old. And she would respond about, you know, either, oh, this was heartbreaking or, you know, I was completely gripped by this or, uh, you you know, it was that kind of thing.
1: (laughs) I love her. Did this steer you toward a particular kind of story that you knew would stir her?
0: I wonder, I mean, I don't know. I haven't thought this through, but perhaps there are things that I wouldn't write because I wouldn't think, she would be an audience for it but there's, for example, I wrote a, a draft of a novel and she did get to read that um, before she died and was a huge hugely moved by it. and so um, sort of my feeling about that is, well, if that doesn't ever turn into a book, my the reader I wanted to read it read it
1: <laughs> and that's really response
0: Yeah, I would be okay with that because her response was so so strong and was so emotional and wasn't about, Oh, this is gonna be a hit or anything like that. She was just she was she told me you know she cried for a day after she read it, and it was and she thought it was my best work now, maybe no one else is ever gonna think it's any good at all, but that is okay because I consider her a real consumer of things in a very in smart uh heartfelt way, so that's enough for me if she's the
1: She's the one who liked it. And your most recent book, Lincoln's Lie, which is incredible, is about the journalism business. And you dedicated it, I noticed, to your parents. Yes, so, oh. yes.
0: And I did. I when I was choosing to dedicate it to them, I thought, do I put mom and dad? But I thought, but that's not the way in which I want to dedicate this. It's to them as they were as journalists. I think she would have liked the book quite a lot because of the fact that it takes a look at iconic figures like Lincoln <laughs> and, and looks a little bit deeper as it, it, what he was like as a human being. And, you know, some of the behavior that isn't exactly what we expect. And then there's all the characters of the news media. And I think she would like that a lot. I think she would be excited that it was this kind of whodunit read and all that kind of thing um so i would love for her to read it and i you know i wish she were around to read everything that i will write in the future but
1: and just to go out on a limb here but you're a great writer and you didn't get it from you know <laughs> just nowhere right
0: yes and i mean my father is also i mean he even just wrote me a, an email the other day where i thought well that's really well done they definitely i mean we had a home filled with books they loved all, all writing. And also another funny thing that she used to do when we were kids was (laughs) she would go to the movies and then, The next, and of course, you know, we'd have a babysitter, and then we'd wake up the next morning, and she would tell us the the whole plot of the movie. But it wasn't just the plot; it was you know the emotion of the scene. But she would say, you know, and then he said, and so, but she would tell it in such a gripping way that we would sit there and listen to the whole thing.
1: You wrote the eulogy for your mother, and Mm -hmm. would you read a little bit? Sure, from that.
0: Um, I'll I'll read the passage that actually taught, speaks to what we were talking about in terms of her inventing motherhood. My mother, who was such an extraordinary mother to my three brothers and me, and who mothered so many others after, from grandchildren to chode students and on, never got to have a mother for very long herself. Her mother died when she was eight. With no model for motherhood, she invented a unique form of mother. A mother would be someone who lived primarily to spark your imagination, who pointed out the beauty in the world from a curled piece of driftwood to a passage from a poetic memoir from a French writer. It would be someone who revealed to you her anxieties and sorrows, who did not hide her humanity. She would challenge you. A mother would be someone to welcome in the young and old to her house at Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and give them a night to remember. A mother would be the type of person who revealed how you talked to and played with children, never ever condescending to them, but moving at their pace, seeing what they saw. A mother was a person who went on adventures when she dared and told you about them later.
1: And you read this at her memorial service?
0: At her funeral.
1: At her funeral. (laughs) And what year did she die? 2015. And she was sick with cancer?
0: Yeah, it was a very swift process. She, she, you could tell she was getting fragile, but she refused to go to the doctor um, because she said either she didn't have time or, you know, if it was her time to go, it was her time to go. She came in October of 2014 to watch my kids while I went uh, out of town and there were signs then that she was not herself you know just in terms of what her her fatigue so i said to her you know you have to go to the doctor and so the when she went they found that she had advanced cancer and it had spread and so it was essentially just this uh just a grueling march towards death and she died at the end of january
1: i'm so sorry i know
0: it was terrible and were you with her? I, I was in the ambulance with her when she went to hospice. And that had a strange experience to it too, which is that the when we loaded her into the ambulance and they went to start it up, and this is January, the ambulance wouldn't start. So for about two hours, I would say, we sat and she was in her, her stretcher in that ambulance. And so there was nothing to do but talk to the nice driver who was waiting for a jump. She got her entire life story and heard everything about her relationships, advised her about the person she was with. By the end, the the driver when we got there said, I have to give you a hug and a kiss and I'll never forget this. And she said, "And you know, I'm going to have a party in two days or something at my house, and we're going to uh, raise a toast to you." I was like, "That's incredible! That even in the ambulance on the way to hospice, she could forge that kind of a relationship." So the we there was you know some mainly there, but then I would sometimes have to go back to New York. But there was a terrible snowstorm that came up. And my brother, he went and he was there overnight and he said, you know, I don't know that you need to come back at this point because she's not really, really responsive. And so I thought about that and thought, well, I guess there's wisdom in that. And then all of a sudden this winds died down and there's snow everywhere. But I thought I can't do this. She's there. She's still alive. So I raced up there. I went into the room, but the minute I walked in, she just started reaching towards me. And then I just was with her for the next, you know, 36 hours straight. And we had, we were able to have some communication through that, including at one point she was able to croak out a very raspy, I love you. And my brother said, you have to go home just to, to get a break because you've been—it's not healthy to be here for more than thirty-six hours straight. And uh, so, I—he took me to the train station. I got on the train. The car, the—I jumped onto the train because he was about to leave. The train doors closed, and his the phone rang. It was him, and he said, "I just got the call. She just died. We hadn't been gone even a half an hour, but she must have just. Want, she was the type of person who it would make sense that she would want to do that." Uh, alone.
1: Thank goodness you got there. I know. Aren't you glad you did?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Okay. So your mom didn't have a role model for mothering, but you did. So what was your biggest takeaway from her when you became a mother? How many kids do you have?
0: I have two daughters. Mm -hmm. Um, I, the thing that I wish I had that she has is that ability to just always want to be engaged. Like, you know, I I have times where I need, you know, I'm on deadline or I she would get down on the floor constantly with kids and play. And she would, you know, she never took a moment to just say, oh, I need to do whatever it was for herself. And there's another thing that she that I admire her for. Which I'm probably more adventurous and courageous on a certain level, I would say. She had some timidity, but there were things that she did that were wilder. We would go up to Maine as a family every year for at least a week. On her birthday, which usually coincided with the trip, she would wake everyone up who was willing at pre dawn. Uh, they'd drive over to the extraordinarily cold Maine Ocean. And dive in just as the sun was rising and and it's like I mean the, the cold the level of cold is the kind that shoots pain up into your knees, oh you know, my like, God, but it was but it was the kind of thing that you know the grandkids as they came along too, just thought this was the coolest thing and would Amazing. love to go do that with her, but she did that right up until she was you know the year before she died
1: So what would you say her most pronounced legacy is?
0: Pretty much everybody that I come across who knew her, and that's a lot of people, you may have a lot of listeners for this if I do a decent job of it, because she had a lot of fans, but uh, they all say that she helped them so much in a particularly trying moment. So she was just such a good listener and such a good advice giver and always... Really had a deep affection for anyone who is kind of trying, I would say, in life. So that's her legacy. And I mean, I hear it constantly from people quite a lot. And, you know, and also on Facebook, you know, people will pop up to talk about her and what she meant to them. I just don't think there's that many people out there who. Who will give you the time in that particular way that will that wants to hear what's going on with your life, wants to hear what you want and and help you see a way forward to it. I mean, on a certain level, she was probably too much of an idealist in as much as she believed. Absolutely. You always go for your dream, even if it's not going to exactly pay out. But, uh, you know, but that's also a nice way to live. You know, it's a day, a a life that never has a valueless day.
1: Wow. You know, a lot of people have pretty crummy moms. (laughs) Do you, do you, when you're comparing notes with friends, do you ever think to yourself, oh, I feel kind of guilty. My mom was so great.
0: Well, but the good thing is I shared her with so many people, you know, so I don't have to feel like I hoarded her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, Biz Mitchell, I'd like to, first of all, congratulate you on the new book, uh, Lincoln's Lie. And the subtitle is?
0: A True Civil War Caper Through Fake News, Wall Street, and the White House.
1: And um, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me about your really extraordinary mother, Liz Mitchell.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate
1: it. And that's it this week for Our Mothers, Ourselves. Our theme song was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Manchin is our artist-in-residence. Our intern is Rosie Manick, and the show's producer is Alice Hudson. A special expression of gratitude this week to Kamala Harris's mother, Shamala Gopalan, who died just over a decade ago at age 70 and didn't get to see her daughter's remarkable accomplishment. But my guess is she wouldn't be surprised. And to the woman most responsible for my presence here
0: today, my mother, Shamala Gopalan Harris, who is always in our hearts.
1: Our Mothers, Ourselves is a production of Overdeck Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone, and stay safe. (laughs)